3617, respond to report of shots fired. The Coroner Talk podcast takes you behind the scenes with coroners, clinicians, and death investigators from around the world to provide training, news, and interviews from leading experts in the area of death investigation and scene management, bringing real stories and solid training together in one source. Now, here's your host, Darren Dake. Well, hello and welcome to this week's episode of Coroner Talk, the only podcast in iTunes dedicated to the best people in the world death investigators, and those in supporting roles. Hey, I got a great big announcement here. I got confirmation today. We've exchanged information, and everything is set that I will be your keynote speaker uh, for at least a day and a half or two days for the Mississippi Coroners and Medical Examiner Association Conference in June 19 through 21, something like that. So anyway, I look forward to that. It's always a great time there in Biloxi. So those, um, my Mississippi friends, I'll be coming back. And uh, I had I had one of the Mississippi friends down when I was there last year had said that uh, he has family up in the Missouri here near St. Louis, and he was going to let me know when he got up here and we was going to go out to dinner. Uh, well, you know what? He never called. So I don't know if he didn't come see his daddy or if he forgot about me, but I'll see him when I get back. And I don't know if for sure that he's a listener, but I know I have people listening who know who I'm talking about, and they're going to tell him that I'm expecting that dinner. So I just look forward to being back there in Mississippi in May, a lot of good, or in June, a lot of good friends there, and I look forward to seeing them again. So if you're interested in having uh, me come to your conference, if you're organizing a conference or a seminar or something that I can help with or speak into, uh, I can come to your conference and and either spend a full day training or whatever you need. Uh, And here's an idea as well. We've been doing some of this. Uh, Let's say you want me as part of your conference. You're like, you know what, we've got a lot planned, but I would like to user for four hours we can do it virtually Uh, you've got a big screen and a a computer with a camera on it and you've got a big screen projector Uh, i can stay right here in our new state-of-the-art studio and i can come in and uh, we can see each other and i can uh, teach and talk and present to your association um, on the big screen just as if i was there um, I'm a little one-dimensional, but I'd be there nonetheless, and we can still talk and be involved. So that is an option. I know that there's one state uh, that's planning that uh, with me now. And so I know that's something that we can do, and, and I look forward to doing more of those. If I want to be up there all day or a day and a half or we've got some other stuff going on, well, you know, it's, it's a little easier for me to be there. But if you just want to try me for four hours and, and do something, then I, I would love to come in that way. So as I spoke about last week, a huge big announcement, Death Investigator Magazine. You don't understand how big this is. Death Investigator Magazine. It's been about three years ago we started to launch this magazine before. And you know what? I I wanted to launch it then, but but I just I don't think we were quite big enough at that point. I didn't have the staffing. I, we would have certainly made it work. But now everything is better. We've got the staffing to do it. The Academy has grown to the point that we have uh, writers and contributors and and we have an editorial staff that can can jump in and help. So the Death Investigator magazine is now a monthly magazine subscription. Right now it's digital. Uh, If there's interest, we'll come out with a paper version. But right now it's digital. Your iPad, your tablet, your phone, your your laptop, whatever. all kinds of information going to be in there. And it is Death Investigator Magazine is dedicated to you as a death investigator. Uh, police will be interested in it as well. I'm not saying it isn't, but they have a magazine, you know, law enforcement and things like that, magazines. 
this is Death Investigator Magazine, and it's re- uh, everything you do as a death investigator, whether it be law enforcement, coroner, medical examiner, uh, forensic nurse, pathologist, whatever you do in the field of death investigation, you will gain from this magazine. So if you're interested in finding out more, as the first part of May here, all the I opened it up to, in stages to, to past uh, contributors and then to people on our email list, and then now we're open up to the public, and so you can you go in and, and be, get some rewards and discounts to go ahead and subscribe early. It'll come out uh, mid-year. Uh, it'll be uh, your first year subscription. So just go to coronertalk.com. And when you, you can, when you get there, you can go to cornertalk.com forward slash magazine or just go to cornertalk.com and you can uh, find the magazine link in the top right-hand corner and the menu bar. Just click on magazine. And that'll take you either currently to the pre-subscription page. And then if you're listening to this way in the future, then, of course, it'll still take you to the page that hosts the magazine. So Death Investigator Magazine, great big news. It's an amazing thing. And we've got a lot of supporters on it. Uh, it's going to be something uh, that has, is like that's not been seen in this uh, in this industry before because it hasn't been. It's brand new. Uh, it's an exciting thing. And if you want to be a part of that and you want to be a part of a contributing uh, member in the first uh, issue, I keep wanting to say episode because episodes are podcast. Now I got to think about magazine and that's that's issues. So it's going to be hard for me to, to think about the two. Uh, but if you want to be a part of that, jump in now. Again, go to CornerDoc cornertalk.com click on the magazine link in the menu uh, get your subscription secured now so that uh, you'll be some of the first to be involved in that all right had a listener brian i won't say his last name because he didn't give me permission uh, so i i'm sure he wouldn't care but i'm just going to use the listener brian uh, sent me an article that he thought would be interesting to use in our What's in the News segment, and I would have to agree with him. I want to talk about uh, using people after they've died to open up their cell phones and a story that uh, happened out of Florida here. All right, this is a kind of an interesting story that's in the news. I don't think it's anything new per se. I know I've done it or I've attempted to do it on suicides and things like that. So this is a case out of Florida. And so the opening headlines here, uh, opening sentences says, most people agree what Largo detectives did at the funeral home was legal. What they diverge on is whether it was appropriate. Now think about this for a minute. Was it legal? Yes. But was it appropriate? Okay, Uh, this is a quote from, I believe, one of the uh, uh, family members or something says, I just felt it was so disrespectful and I felt violated. Um, This individual was shot by the police. He shot and killed by the Largo police. Okay, during an arrest attempt, whatever went on. And then the police came in and tried to open his cell phone with his finger, you know, dead fingers there uh, because they were trying to finish the case that they had originally started working with him on in uh, it's a drug case and things like that. The question here comes up with this. Is it legal or is it appropriate? Now, they were uh, obviously working on a drug case, and that's what got them involved in this and the shooting. Okay, uh, Detectives said that they didn't feel like they needed a search warrant because there was no expectation of privacy after death. 
And the, it is an opinion that's shared by several legal experts, according to this article. And I would agree to a point. So, um, yes, for him, there is no expectation of privacy. Um, now, it didn't set right with the family, of course, but you cannot, any evidence you find in that phone, you cannot use to convict this gentleman that has already died, obviously. So using, uh, going into the funeral home and, and using this man's hands or fingers to try to unlock a, a cell phone or a mobile device, uh, you find evidence on there that proves that he was a drug dealer or things like that. Uh, it could go to help exonerate the police. It could go help to solve the case that they're working on or close their case. So, no, they don't really need a search warrant. Uh, is it appropriate or not? Well, I don't, of course, I'm coming from a law enforcement perspective. I don't believe there's a problem with that. If it's a if it's a criminal investigation, uh, they, they didn't walk in here during a funeral and stop the funeral to do this. They would just went to the funeral home before services to try to unlock this phone. Now, they they have no vested interest in their body, right? But maybe the family does, so that's kind of an issue. But here's where I want to ask if there's a little bit of a problem. So what if the information that was received on that phone pointed to other people in the case? Would the need for the cell phone would a need for a search warrant then should have been had uh, because the they looked at the phone and they found information about the deceased. But is that evidence fruit from the poisonous tree, so to speak? Or is it going to be arguable in in court as it would have been found inevitably because they were looking to open this phone? I don't know which way that would go, actually. And every state is going to have something different. Uh, you know, Supreme Court in 2014 ruled that a warrantless search of a cell phone during an arrest is unconstitutional. All right. Florida's had other situations as well where they've ruled, is it uh, a Fourth Amendment violation or not? And so it's this is during live people. But it's just now getting to the point where we're using dead people to open their own phones. And is this something that is... Uh, okay or not okay because this is as technology comes forward as we have more and more of this stuff come up more and more of these things will happen that we have to be decided on in court and like the search warrant issue so when you argue those situations in court is it through the poisonous tree or is it something that would have been found inevitably anyway that's going to be an argument before the court and the judge is going to make a determination I don't, so you may win it, you may not win it, okay? Now, I have done this in suicides where someone has had their phone in their pocket or maybe laying beside them, and I have tried to use, I don't know their passcode, it asks for a fingerprint, I've, I've, I have used their fingerprint, I've opened one or two phones, there's some that it don't work on because obviously they didn't have that set up. Uh, but what am I looking for? Well, I'm looking for a suicide note. I'm, I'm looking for text messages or emails, things like that. Uh, I'm not working a criminal investigation either. And also, you got to keep in mind that are you coming at this from a coroner perspective or are you coming at it from a law enforcement perspective? Because if it's a law enforcement perspective, well, there's more need for search warrants sometimes in certain situations. When you're coming at it from a coroner perspective, what am I trying to do if I got my coroner hat on? Okay, so I, I need to determine cause and manner of death. I need to determine identity. I need to find next of kin. All that information could be located on that cell phone. 
you know, I'm allowed to go and look in dresser drawers to try to find a wallet or a purse or something to be able to get ID or a police officer is a little more restricted when he goes and starts digging through cabinets and, and drawers and looking under beds. See, so so I think when the coroners do it, uh, when it comes to for checking IDs and things like that, but again, not need for a search warrant when a person is dead. So police officers, it's kind of limited there, but do they share a house with somebody? Uh, I, I don't know. There's all kinds of things that can come up, but understand that it is becoming prevalent. You're going to see more and more of it. So how would you do this in your area? How would you do it? If you had a suicide, for instance, and you wanted to open a phone, let's say you uh, wanted to know if the person sent emails or text messages or wrote a suicide note or something like that, would you do it or would you not do it? In this case, we have a criminal case they're working. Is what the police did valid? A lot of legal opinions say it is. Is it ethical? Is it justified? See, all of this, I think, is going to be ruled out in time by what's called case law. It really isn't statutory law. It's, is it, is it, it kind of is okay statutorily. Is it okay, though, or not okay? And so that is coming into where case law. You know, something, my last point here, something that's pointed out in this article is, you know, there's a Michigan ruling, and even in Missouri, most states, uh, the medical examiner coroner is allowed to take blood sample from a man killed in a car accident. And in fact, it's state law in Missouri. If you die of a motor vehicle accident, a boating accident, an ATV accident, and you're the driver, operator, you have to give a blood sample. I have to take your blood because they want to check for drugs and alcohol. You're already dead. They can't convict you, but that's something I have to do. So that's a violation of their privacy without a search warrant, but they don't need their blood anymore. Uh, what about the phone? What about self uh, computers? What about things like that? So uh, you know what? It's going to be an issue. It's going to be, uh, become more and more of an issue. And I, I look forward to seeing how this shakes out. I don't think there's a problem in this particular case. I'm just talking about nationwide over the next couple of years, we're going to see more and more of this. And it's something to watch for. So let me introduce today's main topic, main training conversation we're going to have today. We're going to talk to three individuals, Kyle, Brad, and Sarah, from the Midwest Area Transplant Network. Uh, they're out of Westwood, Kansas. Being Organ Donation Month, Awareness Month, we're going to bring them on to talk about organ and tissue donation. And they've got a lot of interesting things to say, not only about, you know, of course, we got we know it saves lives and we know all of that, but, but how does it work? Can you can you do an autopsy and organ donation? Um, if you can't give tissue, can you still give corneas? Uh, can can you if you was in prison, why can't you give tissue if you've been in prison and you've died in a car wreck? But if you're on life support, you can if you're in prison. Uh, you know all of those things, and and most OPOs across the country are the same. Uh, the, there are a few differences, but most of the laws and the rules are the same. So regardless of where you're at, uh, these are going to apply to you. And of course, we do talk about and we try to convince you to get on your first call number with your OPO, get to know them, uh, know how to call in a death. Uh, you call in the death, they'll take it from there, and you can save a lot of lives. And some people say, ah, it's such a hassle. Well, a lot of OPOs are changing that to make it not so much of a hassle. So uh, th we're bringing them on today to talk about how the process works kind of stay generic nationwide there but why is it good and how it can be done and what it will do to benefit you and how it benefit other families it's a great conversation um and so they've joined me by phone uh and uh, we're we're going to join them now in that conversation and i'll be back after that
Adjust your earbuds, turn up those speakers, and hang on. It's now time for this week's featured conversation. All right, I'm right back with you here. And as I pre-introduced, I, we got the three guests here from the uh, Midwest Transplant Network. Uh, Sarah, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you guys do out there in Kansas. Thanks for having us, Darren. We are Midwest Transplant Network. We are based out of Westwood, Kansas, and we are connecting lives through organ and tissue donation in Kansas and the western two-thirds of Missouri since 1973. So we are celebrating our 45-year anniversary this year and excited to celebrate National Donate Life Month this April. We are one of the nation's 58 federally certified not-for-profit organ procurement organizations. We provide services like organ procurement, surgical tissue recovery, eye banking, and lab testing, and also a 24-hour rapid response on referrals from hospital partners. Uh, We rank top quarter nationally among the OPOs, which reflects our high standards and strong professional relationships, like the ones we have with our coroners and our funeral directors and our medical examiners. I'd now like to introduce you to Brad Martin, who is our funeral home liaison and responsible for building and maintaining those positive relationships. Hi, Darren. Uh, As Sarah said, I'm Brad Martin. I'm the funeral home liaison. I also uh, work with the MEs and coroners in our service area, which she explained is all of Kansas and two-thirds of Missouri. Um, I think something that that we have maybe different than other parts of the country is in Kansas, our ME system is doctors um, that are set up with hospitals on the Missouri side, as you know. Uh, they're elected officials, so um, majority of them are not actually part of the hospital system. So uh, when it comes to MEs and referrals on the Kansas side, we're getting those referrals from the medical examiners and the hospitals. Um, and I'd kind of like to maybe, you know, work a little bit more on the Missouri side, because I think that's what we're here today to talk a little bit about is how coroners and medical examiners that aren't affiliated with hospitals can help with referrals. Um, I think it comes down to whether or not, you know, what, what kind of death it is. Um, you know, if it's an MVA or a home death, um, and then what the coroner's position is on that case. Um, I think when it comes to donation, you know, they can look uh, at the driver's license uh, and see if it's first person if there's a heart on there, that way they know that they're an organ and tissue donor. And obviously, if it's a coroner's case, more than likely, uh, we're looking at tissue only and not organs. Um, when it comes to home deaths and MDA, the biggest thing that can really help out an OPO is if they know a lasting lifetime. That really helps us figure out, you know, where we are in the case, if it's even eligible. Um, if the coroner has that information, then he can call and referral. We had a case just this week from a coroner on the Missouri side. It was a death at home. The family found uh, the next of kin deceased in the morning. So they called 911. The local coroner showed up, asked some questions, and was uh, he had spoke with us at a coroner's convention recently, and we had told him kind of the information we needed. So he was able to ask about donation and they were interested. He had a lasting lifetime on this person. So he set that up with the funeral home 
got the, the body to the funeral home for cooling, which also is very important to us on the tissue side to, to get cooling done. He did an external exam at the funeral home, and we were able to contact the family and proceed with tissue donation, all without a referral from the hospital. So that's some, you know, some of the things that we are looking for help on the coroner side, you know, and this helped that family with something good out of something bad. And uh, it was an, you know, it was an important thing that that coroner did. And that's kind of what we are out to help educate coroners to, to know the information that we need to make that referral possible. Yeah, no, it's a great, uh, great program. And I, and I got several questions I'll get back to you on, Brad, as we go. But uh, Kyle, okay. can you weigh in as to what you do and, and what you can speak to us about to start off with? Sure. So my name is Kyle Kinsey. I'm the director of the uh, Tissue Services Department. So essentially what the Tissue Services Department is, is we have a group of staff who actually does the recovery uh, of the tissue and the corneas uh, from the donors. We do about 98% of our cases in-house. We have a, a tissue recovery suite located here at our facility in Westwood, Kansas. It's uh, four operating rooms. Uh, Matter of fact, if you were to come in here, you wouldn't notice any difference uh, from a normal operating room. The recoveries are all done aseptically. um, And so it's just like a a, a normal surgery here. And and frankly, uh, we would invite uh, any coroner or funeral director uh, within our service area or anywhere from that matter uh, to come in and see our facility is we're uh, proud of what we have and what we do here. Uh, So essentially, uh, once a death has been referred to us either from a hospital or from a coroner or medical examiner, uh, we will arrange the transportation of that donor or that patient uh, to our facility. And once that donor arrives here, uh, we begin that recovery uh, very soon after. So the referral comes in to what we call our donation services department. It's essentially a call center. Um, And the referral comes in and then at that point, the staff within that department uh, starts to make contact with the coroner. If it is a coroner's case, uh, they collect all of the medical information, they reach out to the family, they do what's called an authorization or they get consent from the family. They also do a DRE, uh, which would be uh, a medical social history with the family to make sure there's no criteria there that would rule that donor out. So once all that information is collected, um, then we arrange to have the donor transported to our facility. And once it arrives here, um, that is where uh, that recovery procedure begins. Uh, the recovery procedure would last anywhere between two and five hours. Uh, we try to be quick, but we also try to maintain the quality of the tissue that we're recovering, knowing that if we make a mistake during the recovery, it could affect the outcome of that tissue and whether or not it's able to get transplanted. So once that, uh, once that entire process has occurred, um, we will arrange for transport of that body either back to the medical examiner's office or to the funeral home uh, or wherever, wherever it's going to go. Well, so Kyle, so whether, kind of, whether yeah, you sure. answer the question or Brad, either one, but but explain to our listeners how an autopsy, if it's autopsy is required, 
but the family wants donation or, or the coroner decides to call you guys or, or whatever. I'm sure all OPOs work about the same. Do autopsies and organ donations, but heads, but in this case could just be tissue donation. Uh, but how is that able to be done if an autopsy is to be done? And how is chain of custody and the legal matters uh, protected in that situation? Sure. So, so here locally where we are, um, we have three medical, actually four medical examiner's offices that we work very closely with in our state. And, and we're actually very lucky uh, because all of those medical examiners are very supportive of donations. Now, depending on the kind of death, um, some, sometimes we're not allowed to go pre-autopsy to do the tissue recovery. Uh, so if, 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 if there is a certain kind of death that, that won't allow that, then we can actually still recover cornea and tissue post-autopsy. However, uh, being that our medical examiners and many of our coroners are so supportive, uh, we're able to go pre-autopsy. So what will happen is the, the, the patient would go to the medical examiner's office, they'll do an external ID, and then we'll have the body transported over here, we'll do the recovery, and then it goes back to the medical examiner or the pathologist uh, for, that, for that autopsy. As far as organ donation is concerned, in many cases, the investigator will actually come to the hospital where the patient, as you know, is brain dead to become an organ donor, um, and they'll do, a, they'll do a physical exam while they're, while they're in the hospital. And, uh, and then once we're done with that organ donation process, they'll go to the medical examiners for uh, a, 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 a physical exam. And then when they're done with the physical exam, it'll come here to our facility uh, where we'll do the tissue recovery, and then it'll go back to the medical examiner for for the actual autopsy. Now we pay for all that transportation. We make all those arrangements here in our facility through through the medical examiner. And 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 one of the other things that we also do is we'll make sure to draw blood for the medical examiner, and uh, yeah, and and really help them along with that process uh, to make sure that there's nothing there that they will miss. They've come in and take pictures in the hospital. They've come in and take pictures here in our facility. Matter of fact, we have a couple of pathologists that will actually come here to our facility to recover the heart, uh, which will ultimately be used for heart valves and for AI because they want to keep that direct connection uh, with their investigation. And certainly we let them scrub in and do that. Now, as far as chain of custody, the chain of custody always remains in, in, in with the medical examiner. They're just releasing it to us for donation, but even though it's in our custody, they ultimately hold the responsibility for that process that's going on. So as you can imagine, uh, Darren, there's a lot of communication and a lot of uh, education that happens uh, between the two entities, the medical examiner and the OPO, to make sure that we fully understand what they're doing and they you know, understand what we're doing. And that's really how this all works, is just the training and education between all those entities and frequent communication. Yeah, 99% of the time, I'm sure it works flawlessly. I know my experience uh, when where we're at, it does. Uh, but speak to us a little bit about that. You talk about chain of custody, but is there times that you guys may end up having to go to court to testify about what you've done? Again, we're talking about we have a homicide. Defense attorneys come up and say, well, this evidence was changed because... You know, these transplant services did this or did that. Have you ever had to testify in court on that? Or as long as the medical examiner sees it before and after, they testify to it? Yeah, so, so the latter, 
to your answer would be correct. And, and you know, uh, as long as we've been in business for 45 years, um, at, at least I'm not aware of any, any time that the OPO has, has been called in uh, to testify on anything that they've seen or done. And usually the medical examiner uh, will do that on, you know, our behalf and speak for d- the donation and donation process. Um, as far as national statistics and stuff, as far as an investigation being impeded by donation, I certainly don't know of that being on record. I'm not saying it's not. I'm saying I don't know. I'm aware that it's ever happened before. But, you know, the support that we get from the medical examiners and the coroners and all the investigators in our state um, shows that they fully trust our process and and what we do. And certainly we would, you know, never do anything on our end to impede their progress. I will tell you, though, there has been times on rare occasions where, you know, somebody's had to step in and say, look, you know, donation can't happen on this case for reasons X, Y, and Z. But I literally, in the 20 years I've been in this business, could probably count on a couple fingers how many times that's happened. Yeah, again, I guess if the medical examiner is involved before and after, then he can testify to that. When you're dealing with a coroner themselves and in, in either an in-home death or a car accident, something like that, uh, the coroner's the one making the release. He would release anyway. Uh, they contact you. Again, I'm I'm generalizing. I know that most OPOs work the same. That, that I'm, I'm familiar with a few in some other states. And they all seem to work the same. But for a coroner's point of view, uh, what what do they need to do? Uh, you're, you don't have a medical, or maybe it's a medical examiner investigator that's not going back for autopsy. They're releasing mm-hmm. the body. So uh, is there precautions that they need to take, uh, time frames they need to do? What what if you had a, if you had a group of coroners standing in front of you, uh, you Brad, Sarah, any of you, what would you tell them to look out for and to really prepare the body for uh, if they're going to call for donation? Well, I'll I'll take the first part of this question here. This is Kyle again. Uh, so timing is everything, and and the quicker that we can get that referral directly from them, uh, the better. Um, we have a maximum time to have the tissue recovered. Uh, which is 24 hours. Um, if the body is not cooled, we have a maximum time to recover that tissue, which is 15 hours. So the quicker that they can can make that referral, because after they make that referral, we have to make contact with the family. We have to get authorization. Obviously, there's transport times if they're coming from far western side of Kansas or somewhere, uh, you know, in eastern side of Missouri. Uh, timing is everything. And, and there are times, uh, Darren, where we just flat run out of time and we're not able to do that. So from, from my perspective on the recovery side, uh, it's all about timing. I'll let Brad talk a little more about some of the other things that, that coroners can focus on. Right. I think it's like Kyle mentioned, I think the, the biggest thing I'll go back to is when the coroner is there for the investigation is, is, is an LSA. Um, and do we have lots of times we, we may not have a next of kin. Do we have someone that we can get a hold of in our call center to do paperwork and, and get all that done? And then once that is taken care of, we need to get that donor cool, like Kyle mentioned, for timeframes. Um, the other question with, uh, on, the, on the Missouri side that we deal with is the coroner system. Lots of times they will defer the autopsy and it will go to a medical examiner's office for the autopsy. So then we need to go back and talk to the county where the death occurred for restrictions as it goes on to uh, Columbia or to Kansas City for an autopsy to make sure that we have proper restrictions pre or post. 
And so that, again, that takes communication. And so I'm going to go back on the Missouri side. I think a lot of states have this first consent. Uh, Missouri has a heart on their driver's license. That's first consent. Coroner sees that in the Missouri side. They contact the OPO that covers their area of Missouri. And so uh, that should be a quick process, but I understand it's still yet yeah, been in process for uh, been in play for many years. But there's still a lot of times where uh, a lot of OPOs are allowing families still to say no, and then that kind of slows things down because OPOs are having to figure out how to get families talked into things. So has it got to the point yet where uh, if the person has the heart of the driver's license, where they've decided this is what I want, it's just moved forward quickly, or are we still really trying to get family permission? No, actually, hi, Darren, this is Sarah. Actually, we have in our service area, 75% of both Missouri and Kansas are registered donors of the adults. Um, And so we actually have a lot of support whenever we have cases. With the first person authorization, if it's an adult, we go ahead and proceed with the donation. The one thing that we do take, excuse me, we do proceed with the organ donation. We do make sure that we take the time to talk with the family. It's important for us to answer any of the family's questions. Sometimes families will have, they'll believe the myths that are out there. A common myth is that um, medical history might prevent a donation or, for instance, their medical care um, may be called into question of the donor. But we're there to answer any questions to make sure they understand that we are taking very good care of their loved ones during the donation process. So that's important for us. If they are a minor, that is the one opportunity that we do offer the parents to override the minor's decision. Now, Brad, uh, Darren, I will just back up there a little bit. Uh, she did mention that was for organ donation. On tissue donation, um, regardless of whether they're a first-person authorization or not, we still have to talk to the legal next of kin to do a medical social history. So we are not going to move forward uh, with tissue and eye donation until we've sp- spoken to uh, the decedent's loved ones. Right. And that way you can get some information that the coroner may not know about social history and things like that. And to, about, about social history, is it pretty well true across the board that, that a prison sentence alleviates somebody from being an organ and tissue donor? donor? Not organs, uh, but tissue, yes. And it's generally associated with, with high risk. Um, matter of fact, even if somebody has, uh, tattoos on them that would indicate that they were quote unquote prison tattoos or done unprofessionally, um, that could also be a rule out. However, I do want to clarify that it's still important to touch base, um, and, and, and make sure that we talk through that because we've had instances where, um, you know, they thought it was prison tattoos and then we got some people involved that would be considered experts in that. Um, you know, this is absolutely a professional tattoo, or a lot of times we'll call the family and the family will say, well, actually that tattoo is about 20 years old. They did it themselves when they were a teenager. Uh, and then that would rule them back in. But that first glance there, somebody looked at it and said, oh, that's a prison tattoo. They can't be a donation, a donor. I'm not going to call when actually maybe that wasn't the right decision. Once we talked to the family and got a little more information. So on a point of education, why why does that alleviate tissue donation? It's the high risk activity that's involved in prison and stuff. So, so when you do a medical social history, uh, the questions are very similar to if you're donating blood or plasma. 
Um, there's a lot of questions. I think there's 45 questions or so that we answer. Some of them are very personal uh, that that deal with, you know, maybe intimacy in their life or whether they've uh, engaged in high-risk activities such as intravenous drug use. Um, and those things uh, preclude tissue donation because of that high risk of transferring um, a communicable disease, uh, which we can't recover if, you know, it's, if, if a donor was involved in those type of activities because it could show up in the recipient. Uh, so we exclude those donors. So this is not saying that all prisoners engage in high-risk activity, but the chances of that happening are higher uh, in those confined spaces. So it's the general industry standard of tissue processors, which are the companies that actually take the tissue and process it and make it available for transplant, uh, have all elected, as has the Federal Food and Drug Administration, who also oversees our activities, uh, that those are unsafe donors. Yeah, absolutely. Makes perfect sense. Uh, but again, on the education side, why does that not spill over into live organs, but it does in tissue? Well, yeah, because so live organs, um, they run what are called serologies or blood tests that test for high-risk diseases. They run those immediately. So that information is all available uh, before the recovery happens. Now, when they go to surgery to recover organs, um, there's this surgical technique that everybody uses called universal precautions, um, which means that you have to treat every patient like they are high risk. Um, so they get their results back before the organ is transplanted. Okay. So with tissue, it takes a little bit longer to, to, to get the serologies and get all that information and talk with the families. So it's just a general consensus, um, that the, that the industry has made. Um, to not recover tissue from those donors that are deemed high risk. Right. Makes perfect sense. I just wanted to make sure that the coroners understood the difference and, and, and why that is. Um, and and it, do, it does make sense. And, and with somebody being dead already, you're not be able to do as much of that uh, pre-screening, so to speak. So, uh, Brad, I want to come back to you for a second. Um, in this particular in your particular company, uh, I think your title is Funeral Home Liaison. Um, and I only ask because I don't understand the Funeral Home Liaison. Uh, why is it a Funeral Home Liaison? What do you do with funeral homes? Why aren't you a coroner liaison? What's what's the distinction there? Actually, there really isn't a, a specific distinction. I am both. I deal with the, the MEs and the funeral homes. I think my title has changed over the years to just say funeral homes. Uh, in our service area on the Missouri side, the majority of the coroners that are elected are also funeral directors. So it kind of works out to my advantage on that side. And as I mentioned earlier, on the Kansas side, it's more of a medical examiner system. So we have the offices instead of individual coroners that are, that are dealt with. But I do uh, work with both of them on a daily basis and uh, it's a big part of it is education and I, I think that we're making strides here in the Midwest and hopefully our numbers from our corners continue to go up. 
Uh, certainly. And I know that's, uh, of course, going to come with education. And in all transparency, I am not in your district. So I'm asking questions very generically. I am not in your district. And so I ask these because I don't understand them all. Plus, I have to speak to this on a national level because there's a lot of different OPOs out there. Um, sure. You're all right. In, in Missouri, there are a lot of uh, corners that are funeral home directors. Of course, I know that standard has been changing over the time. But but I know by being in this industry for a long time and also by being involved with multiple states when it comes to dealing with OPOs, one of the things that I have found is uh, there are some OPOs that, for instance, Louisiana, they are so corner focused. I mean, it, it is it's just amazing what they do with their corners down there because, again, they they know the corners obviously are involved with the bodies long before funeral homes are. But they are very, very corner focused, even to the point of providing uh, training and equipment and different things that they do. Uh, some OPOs are not as focused on coroners um, or even funeral homes for that matter. Um, and I know there's disparity on management and where they are and things like that. But, um, you know, I, I would, of course, you know, coming from my point of view, I, I would think that the more an OPO is involved in the coroner side of it on a daily basis, that's where the training is going to come from in part in, in agreements and partnerships. And so from a coroner side in another in another state, they need to find out who the OPO is, find out who the representative is and uh, ask for a cup of coffee and a dinner and sit down and talk about it and get a relationship because because obviously I'm going to deal more with somebody I've met and know other than just some company name. And, and so I think that's something that uh, you guys are probably are doing somewhat anyway on your area uh, is developing those relationships. And of course, as more and more corners get out of funeral home business, that's something that all OPOs need to think about is developing relationship with coroners and helping them understand the process. Because nationwide, there are a lot of coroners that actually see um, organ procurement as a... Um, as a hindrance. And, and of course I'm trying to get them to understand it's not a hindrance. I'm trying to help educate them that it's very important, but, but, but the general consensus, or at least probably half, if not more is that it, it's a hindrance. Have you ran into that Brad or Sarah, any of you uh, that you've kind of, but you kind of seen that, or have you been able to work through that already over the last few years? So uh, Darren, actually I'll take the first part of this question. Um, Having been in this industry and, 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 you know, with Midwest Transplant Network for not specifically with Midwest, but in this, in this industry for a number of years and have worked with OPOs all over the country, um, we spend a, a tremendous amount of time, uh, developing relationships, uh, with medical examiners, with coroners, with investigators, whether it's attending their meetings, whether it's meeting, uh, with them in their offices whether it's attending their, uh, their symposiums that they have. And I think, you know, just looking at the relationship, our two biggest referring uh, institutions, even more than the hospitals that make the most referrals to us, are two of our large medical examiners uh, here in Missouri and Kansas. So, uh, I mean, I can't tell you how precisely what that number is, um, but I would say probably 15% of our total donors last year, tissue donors, maybe 20% came directly uh, from our medical examiner and coroner and, and uh, institutions. And that's not ones that are coming from a hospital. These are ones that are coming from the field, coming to the, through the medical examiner and then the medical examiner or the coroner or the investigator 
um, actually them or their staff picking up the phone and making the referral to us. Um, we take a tremendous amount of pride in the relationships that we have established and with those medical examiners and then even further uh, more pride in how we've been able to continually establish and maintain those relationships uh, throughout our 45-year history. They are absolutely key to what we do here. And, and we depend on them and our relationships with them um, forever. And I think the information that we continually provide to them is that just one tissue donor, one tissue donor can, can benefit, well, the statistics say that one tissue donor can benefit up to 50 people. But if you look at some of the stuff they're doing these days, uh, whether it be uh, um, bone tissue, that goes into a dental surgery, there are literally thousands of people, thousands that can benefit from just one tissue donor. And if we can get one coroner to pick up the phone and make a referral to us, there could potentially be thousands of lives impacted by that one call. So we know this and, and we, we talk about this pretty much every day. There are, there are discussions in our institution about our relationship with our coroners, our medical examiners, and our investigators. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, that, and that's the whole point about this conversation is it's not only for the area that you work in, but also for nationwide. Is that is it? Uh, if if an OPO is listening, or if a coroner is listening that knows an OPO representative, it, it is that communication and is is that connection that we make because. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I really believe in organ and tissue donation. I, I've had family members that's been saved through it, and I, I know that it works, uh, you know, extremely well. Uh, but it's just something that uh, I, I think that there's probably more coroners that don't understand. And when you don't understand something, you don't do it. You don't, you don't, uh, you don't make the calls. You don't start the process when you don't understand it. And so that was one of the reasons this being the, the right month to do it. But also one of the reasons I want you guys on is to help educate coroners on the importance of it. And, and I, I'm glad what you said is that you spend time making those connections and cooperation because, again, that's what it's going to take to alleviate the, you know, the unknown. But then uh, because there's a lot of coroners in the country that think, well, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to really worry about helping out the organ people. That's a profit company. They're just they're just wanting me to provide their resources. And that's a profit company. Uh, everybody has to make a profit to be in business. Your business is to save lives. That's what they need to look at. Save lives and enrich lives. That's what you do. We can help with that. We need to be partner with you to help with that. And I think we're on the same track there, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So as, as I think Sarah mentioned earlier, we are a nonprofit organization. Um, so, you know, at the end of the year, everything's got to come out equal. Um, it, it's for us, it's the need. Right. It's the continual need of the, of the patients and the recipients out there waiting for that tissue. You know, one of the things we haven't quite gotten to, Darren, was our lower age limit is, is a seven pound, 36 gestational weeks. And, and with those little babies, we can recover the heart for the valves. And there is a list a mile long of little kids and in, in, in little, you know, hospitals like Children's Mercy here in Kansas City that are waiting for those little small valves. And really they have a death sentence. 
if if they can't get that valve. And and typically those are the cases that are most difficult for coroners and medical examiners, investigators to release um, because of the you know the circumstances of the death, whether it's SIDS or whatever that may be. But that one little heart from that one little baby can benefit just the heart, you know, two to five lives to save those little babies' lives. And and I'm not just focusing strictly on the baby. That just seems to be sometimes the most difficult ones to get. And it's also the tissue that's the most in the most demand, I guess you could say, um, because of the need. Right. And I think uh, if you think about that, if the coroner, I understand what you're thinking is or saying, it's hard for them to uh, call in that donation. It's a baby. Do we want to do this? But maybe they need to be thinking about this baby I can no longer help, but we can save two others by making the call. If it's the baby that's keeping uh-huh. them from making the call, then they need to think about the fact that they're saving two for the one that they can no longer save. If they think about it that way, Absolutely. it makes the call a lot easier. Uh, and even in for older yeah. people, and I know that uh, the age limit has creeped up a little bit in uh, some of the ages that, that you can take. Now, let's let's focus just for a second, and I want you to tell me, somebody to tell me a couple of stories that you've really stand out as success stories, but um, so corneas and things like that, that's avascular. So are they able to be taken when other tissue is not, or is it all or nothing type thing? You know, actually, Darren, uh, it is possible. And one thing I think the general public tends to do is rule themselves out. If they have a medical condition, they seem to think that they can't be a donor when that's simply not true. Uh, we ask everyone to, including coroners, just let the procurement professionals find out whether or not a donor is eligible at the time, at the appropriate time. Um, but that does include, you know, cancer patients. Um, and cancer patients, typically the cancer doesn't impact the eye donation. And so one cancer patient who has passed away can have the potential to help give to other people the gift of sight. And I've spoken to cornea recipient recipients who how they understand that organ donation saves lives. However, because of their disease, they slowly had their life taken away from them where they could no longer work, they could no longer drive, they could no longer do their knitting habits at home until they had the transplant. And when they had the cornea transplant, their life was able to come back to them. So in their mind, they felt like their life was saved. So I think it is important to consider that, that it's not just organ donation that saves lives. Um, Heart valves can save babies. Um, The gift of sight can help give someone their life back. Right. Absolutely. All the all the tissues that uh, long bone, everything that can be donated enriches and saves a life of somebody else. And and that, I think, is where us as coroners really need to be focusing on that nationwide is that. We can no longer help the person that's died, baby or no, no, but we can certainly help the living by just simply making that first call. Because in most, in your case, and if I'm wrong, correct me, but in your case, in most OPOs, there's a first call line. You make that first call, they're going to get some information from you, and you all take it from there. You may have a follow-up question for the coroner, but if the coroner's releasing it to you, you deal with the family and go from there. His biggest struggle is just making that first call, right? That's correct. Yeah, I think that's that's the key to it is, you know, coroners, wherever you are, is find out who your OPO is, get their number, and make that referral. And, and they'll walk you through the process on what information they need, you know, as far as LSA and next-to-kin information. But, you know, communication is, is where it starts. I mean, if you can help 
help someone out and, and make something positive out of something negative, that's, that's helping everybody. Yeah. You know, Darren, I had a, uh, I had a, a, a pathologist slash medical examiner here who is about to retire told, told me very early in my career. He's like, you know, as a medical examiner, I deal with death. I, that's, that's all I deal with. And, and organ donation and tissue donation is my one opportunity in this job that I do to actually practice the Hippocratic Oath and to save lives. And he goes, so if, 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 if I can refer one donor to you and that transplant can become successful and save somebody else's life, I've had my opportunity as a medical examiner and as a, you know, a coroner to practice what I've learned all the way through medical school and practice that Hippocratic, Hippocratic oath. And this was also the same pathologist that used to come to our suite and actually recover the heart and recover some of the tissues just to help the process, which is an extraordinary doctor and, and an extraordinary statement. And I think we live by that here because that's how we in this organization also practice the Hippocratic oath, and that is to save lives. Yeah, yeah, very, very well said. So do either one of you, any three of you, have a story that stands out, no names, I understand, but anybody or a situation that really stands out to the life that you know you touched through the job that you do? You know, we had a we had a young young girl here um, who, with her family, we got to go to the Rose Bowl parade. And and this, this little girl, uh, I would say she was probably 11, was in her front yard on 4th of July uh, playing with a sparkler. And her family noticed that she had just collapsed. And, you know, in this business, the first thing you think is that perhaps she had an aneurysm. Uh, but what had happened is about a mile away, there were some, some, some people that were shooting their firearms in the air. And uh, one of the bullets... Uh, or the pieces of ammo had flown way up in the air. And while this little girl was, was, was playing with her sparkler, this bullet struck her right in the back of the head. And she was uh, obviously taken to Children's Mercy and, and suddenly become an organ donor. Um, but just watching that family go through that process of such a random act, um, that she became an organ donor and, and was, was, was just a full organ donor. And, and her family's been very involved here in our ambassadors program at here, here at our OPO and just a huge voice for donation in general and the lives that this little girl saved. And then her family also, her mom got to ride uh, on the, in the Rose Parade, uh, which as you know, is, you know, in Pasadena, California, and there's there's the uh, there's the, the the donate life float where recipients and donor families ride on the actual float, and that was a pretty special moment uh, for all of us uh, at the OPO and and for the family uh, to get to see how that little girl impacted so many lives, and then get to meet other recipients, not her recipients, but other recipients. And that, that story always stands out to me just because of just the randomness of, of her death and, and how that family dealt with it and how that family has continually uh, finds strength. And, 
you know, if you want to relay a, a message to all people involved in this in this industry and in the corner side, it's just the impact that donation can have for that family. And picking up that phone and making that call, even though it's, gosh, this is going to cost me another hour, I'm going to get tied up with these guys. The service that you're providing to that person that has died's family and what families get out of donation and how it can help them uh, begin to heal, uh, it's just tremendous. It, it is just absolutely tremendous. Yeah, I mean, that's a great story. And I think we've all have probably heard similar stories. You know, I had people in my family that's, that's received a donation, had people in my family that's given. And so it is an amazing, uh, when you get to live it in real life, uh, it, it really is a lot different than just being a, a number or a process. And, and I think that story is a great place to end uh, when you when you can have a child like that that has saved many other children. Um, you know, that, that, that really brings it home and, and what the importance of organ and tissue donation is. But, but I wanted to give a last chance if uh, Sarah, Brad, Kyle, any last thoughts you want to say, anything you want to leave our coroners with, uh, our investigators with? Karen, this is Sarah, and I do want to just let people know that we are launching a new regional Green Ribbon Awareness Campaign. It's Our goal is to increase the number of donors in Kansas and Missouri, and our big ask is to give hope and share life. We want people to know that regardless of their age, race, or medical history, they can be a donor. We encourage everyone to not rule themselves out, um, and we want individuals to know that it will not impact your medical care. Saving lives is the utmost priority for doctors and nurses. And also, if we could have the coroners help educate that an open casket funeral is possible after donation. I think often the public thinks that an open casket funeral would not be possible. Um, it's important for us to educate that nothing donation related will prohibit the open casket funeral. As we know, you know, the reason for the death may prevent that, but to educate a family even of that circumstance. And to be clear that it has nothing to do with the donation. Um, but we also want to ask all of your listeners to go ahead and register their donation decision by going to Share Life Midwest if they live in Kansas or Missouri. Um, if they do not, if they're across the U.S., they can go to registerme.org. And just to share that information with your family and friends. We know that coroner, coroners, medical examiners, and funeral home directors are very valuable and trusted members of their community. And I know the community looks to them for input about donation. And so we appreciate your support and helping us be Green Ribbon champions, um, supporting donation and saying yes and helping us to share awareness. Yeah, that's very good. And I think we all um, we all need to do the, the first consent, uh, especially us in this business. We know how important it can be. Brad, any final words? Yeah, I just I, I think when it comes to the corner of medical examiners, um, I'll quote Wayne Gretzky, you, you miss all the shots you don't take. So we miss all the opportunity for donation if, if the coroners and medical examiners don't make that call. You know, at least run it past their OPO and find out um, what, uh, you know, what eligibility there is. And, and if, if they don't try, they, they don't. So I just want to thank, thank you for having us and thank you for your partnership uh, to Gift of Hope and Share Life. Uh, yeah, Brad, I appreciate that. Kyle, any last words from you? Well, I would just say, um, you know, we encourage people, if, uh, if you know, you, Darren, and, and people in Kansas and Missouri, 
And, and really, even if you're just passing through, uh, stop in and see us. Uh, we'd love to, to show you around and show you what we do. And, and, and especially for the coroners, we like to get to know people. I'm sure we met and know probably all of them. But if not, uh, and you're in the area, um, just stop in. We'll, we'll make time for you and show you around and show you a little bit more about what we do here. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, guys, thank you for your time. I won't keep you any longer. I appreciate you coming on and, and sharing with us and teaching us and, and, and helping the coroners to understand that it is an easy process. It's just, just a phone number, whatever your local OPO is. But again, thank you very much for your time. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you, Darren. You too. Thank Bye. you. All right, I'm right back with you here. Uh, Brad, Sarah, Kyle, again, thank you for coming on the Corner Talk podcast and and pouring into us and letting us learn a, a little bit. Uh, again, as I stated on the show, I know uh, when we are a conversation, I know that there are uh, similarities uh, across the country, but there's probably some differences in OPOs as well. Uh, so you listening to me right now, if you are in an area outside of Kansas, Missouri area, uh, contact your local OPO. In fact, Missouri has two. So contact the OPO in your area. Find out what the first call number is. Find out what you need to do. Uh, start making these calls because it is very important that you do so. So I appreciate your time uh, ch- checking into that and doing that because it is so important. And you do actually you know, save lives. That's what it's all about. And uh, as he told you, you know, the Midwest Area Transplant is a nonprofit organization. You know, that's something that I've heard. Uh, well, these are just profit-driven companies they want us to do well in this particular case it's non-profit they're not profiting anything they're paying their bills and and they're developing what they need to develop to save lives that is the most important part so again guys thank you for coming on and and sharing with us so if you I want to remind you as we close here remember the death investigation magazine death investigator magazine uh, we have a few days left for you to jump on some of the by the time you hear this some of the discounted subscriptions might be gone uh, if not then there are other rewards there of course the regular subscription is there as well uh, this magazine is going to launch and we want you involved in it and so just go to cornertalk.com up in the top right hand corner there at the menu you'll just see the word magazine just click on there uh, right now that's going to be your shortest fastest way to get to the uh, the website that has the magazine uh, Kickstarter program on it to get your first subscriptions. Uh, if you're listening to this way off into the future, um, sometime after May of 2018, uh, again, there's going to be a link on the website as well, but it'll take you then to the actual website for the Death Investigator magazine. Uh, but just go to the cor- go to cornertalk.com, click on magazine, get your subscription now if you haven't already done so, uh, so that you're locked in for a year, one year every month, digital subscription uh, of the cor- uh, the Death Investigator magazine. And as I said on top of the show, hey, this is the only magazine in the world dedicated to you. A lot of law enforcement is out there. This is for you as a death investigator or those in supporting roles and interested parties, of course, that wants to know more about the death investigation industry. So everybody, like I say, every single week, please find a way to be a blessing to someone. And above all, above all, be safe. Thanks for listening to Coroner Talk, a DSPN media production. Visit our website at coronertalk.com. And be sure to like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash coroner training. 3617-1024 scene on route to morgue. 